This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. As scientists announce that they've used CRISPR technology to fix a faulty gene in a human embryo, not for the first time, but more accurately than ever before, we take a look at storing, writing and editing in DNA. In nature, there's a very specific code. So that code's no use to us. That code doesn't store zeros and ones, which we use to make MP3 files or PDFs or whatever it is. Plus, our gene of the month is all ears. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for August 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. First, I have some exciting news for you. I've written a new book. It's called How to Code a Human, published by Andre Deutsch, and it's a fully illustrated guide to how our genes work, packed with plenty of photos and diagrams. You can buy it now from all the usual online retailers, and do keep listening to hear a short extract at the end of the podcast. Now, starting with some more exciting news, this time from the world of research. At the beginning of August, we saw headlines loudly proclaiming that scientists have managed to use precision gene editing technology, known as CRISPR-Cas9, or usually just CRISPR, to fix a faulty gene in early-stage human embryos. In fact, this wasn't the first time that researchers have used CRISPR on human embryos, but it was certainly the most successful attempt to date. The research team, made up of scientists in the US, South Korea and China, successfully fixed a faulty version of a gene called MYBPC3, which is responsible for the serious heart defect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which affects 1 in 500 people and can be fatal. Although the fix wasn't perfect, it was more efficient than previous attempts, marking an important step forward for the technology. To find out more about what's different this time, I spoke with Yalda Jamshidi, who specialises in the genetics of heart disease at St George's University of London. So there's actually been three attempts that have been published in the medical literature before that were all out of China. And in all three cases, they had similar problems. One of them was that they couldn't get enough of the healthy copies into the embryo so that the correction wasn't very efficient. And also they found that uh, there was a mixture of modified and unmodified cells. So whilst in some cells there was a correction, there wasn't in others. And they didn't have very high efficiency rates. So I think in the first study that was published, out of 86 embryos, they could only correct four of them. And so the difference between that study and the current published study is that they had tried to edit this after the embryo had the sperm and the egg had fertilized. So it's a much later stage in development. It was still in the embryo, but um, certainly not as early as the other one, which literally was at the time of fertilization. They would put in the CRISPR or the gene editing um, machinery at the same time. Now, I used to study very early development, and I know that that time when the sperm goes into the egg, there's all sorts of unpacking, repacking, rearranging going on. Do you think that might have contributed to the success of the process? 
Yes, I mean, I think actually that probably isn't too unexpected because at that time in development, the embryo is already trying to deal with a lot of mutations or correcting lots of changes that it finds. And so perhaps this process already happens to some extent at that early stage. And having just an extra mutation to correct wasn't so difficult for the embryo. So this is just one condition. Was there a particular reason why this condition was tried? Could it work with other diseases or even traits, you know, for example, like intelligence? So I think that's uh, an interesting question. Perhaps one of the reasons they focused on this cardiomyopathy is because it's fairly common. So one in 500 adults actually suffer from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's also quite severe, so there's no treatment in that uh, present anything that they do take is really to try and alleviate symptoms but there's no cure and because it's highly associated with sudden cardiac arrest so you might hear it when you see these athletes who are running around and suddenly suffer a cardiac arrest on the pitch it's actually quite a shocking um, condition so I think maybe part of the reason was it is a very severe life-threatening condition so that would be one reason to target it whether or not they would apply this to other genes and other mutations and diseases, we'll have to wait and see. But I think when it comes to traits like intelligence or height or eye colour, you hear about all these design of babies and whether we're going to do that. I think that's a much more complicated situation because it's not one gene and one mutation that causes those. It's actually lots, hundreds and thousands working together. So whether we're ever going to be able to gene edit 100 at one go is, is probably fairly unlikely and also the, the genes we know contribute to many conditions and many traits so you might target something that is going to affect height but actually end up affecting something else unwanted so you might end up affecting weight by um, editing that gene so I think that's not going to happen anytime soon. In terms of the technical side of this, what actually happened to the embryos? I mean, these didn't grow into babies, did they? No. So like much research that's carried out on embryos, there's a limit to how long you can keep them in culture. And it's usually five to seven days maximum. So at that point, they would have been destroyed. There was certainly no intention by the researchers to impart these embryos at the end of it. Given the kind of techniques we have at the moment for screening for serious genetic diseases uh, at pre-implantation stage so in the IVF process, is this really necessary? How would it work? How would it fit into that? So at the moment, if a couple were to opt for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, the, the laboratory that would deal with it would take the sperm and the egg and they would be screened for mutations. And if a parent has a mutation such as the one for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, half of the embryos will carry the mutation and therefore half of them would need to be discarded. So in ethical terms, perhaps if we didn't need to discard those 50% of embryos and we could correct them and improve the efficiency, then I think there might be a place for this kind of treatment. So the idea is that if this correcting procedure works when you put the sperm into the egg, so you would just you know, correct all of them, whether they were faulty or not, and then expect that you would have a much higher percentage of fixed embryos that you could choose from. Yes, that's correct. So if you could make the efficiency high enough, then you wouldn't need to worry about discarding any unhealthy copies. Now we obviously know that probably we can. Should we do this? So it was much more efficient than previous studies. I think it was, it was over, just over 70% efficient. But what they were actually doing was enhancing what we already carry out 
which is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for families like this. So whether or not you would want to bolster the current chance of those embryos being healthy by an extra 20%, 25%, is probably not quite there yet. It would need to become much more efficient, so much closer to 90% efficiency, because ideally you want to have a situation where all of your embryos are corrected and healthy and able to implant them. So I think there's still some way to go with efficiency. We certainly, I think the study, the intention wasn't necessarily to use this to treat It was more about learning how the process works. And we don't know a lot about how these these gene editing affect um, embryos over time. And there would need to be much more research to try and study that probably in non-human primates before anyone started thinking about doing clinical trials and getting this into clinics. So I think we're quite some way off in that sense. Whether we should do it or not, I think that's a highly contentious question and certainly a lot of the the papers and the the people are asking that question. And in my own opinion, I would say that uh, hopefully if if we could make the procedure much more efficient, much more safe, and there was plenty of evidence that it would work and it would be fine, then in some cases where there really is no other alternative, no other medical treatment or possibility, then it should be something that could be considered, but only once the the public and the scientific community and the legal community have come to a kind of a consensus about what we're going to do with these sorts of uh, techniques and how safe they are, we really are okay with it happening. How would you like to see the discussion about these techniques, about this technology changing in the media? I think it would be great if there could be more of a balance with what is being reported and less focus on designer babies and the use of genome editing to try and produce these designer babies because much of the research and the researchers who are looking at it, they're really not looking to end up with a designer baby that they can then you know, go and help a couple improve the child's intelligence. It's actually more about trying to help patients who have serious life-threatening conditions now and they want to alleviate their symptoms where there isn't a medical cure at present. And hopefully more education and understanding about what this technology actually is and how how it works and how genetics works. Definitely I think genetics is is getting even more and more exciting at the moment and it's it's definitely starting to get into the media a little bit more but there's plenty of room for education and for helping people understand what we mean by all of these science fiction type words and techniques so that people understand a little bit better what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Yelda Jamshidi from St George's University of London. Gene editing is an exciting technique that opens the door to new approaches for gene therapy, manipulating genes in the body to treat disease, either by fixing a defective gene or by adding in a functional copy of a broken gene. To find out more about the latest progress in gene therapy, I spoke with Michael Linden, a former professor of virology who left academic research to become vice president of gene therapy at the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. There are many rare diseases out there, six to 8,000 rare diseases, some of which have been very well um, characterised. And the characteristic of many of these diseases is single gene defects. Uh, what that means is that a gene has a wrong instruction, in, in essence, making a product that is either wrong or not making a product that a cell needs, and therefore we get sick. And, and what gene therapy is trying to do is to, to replace that function. 
So we know that our genes are made of DNA. That's mm. the instructions our cells use. But uh, you can't just like stick DNA in people or feed DNA to people. How do you get these, these fixed or these well genes into people and into the right places in people? So uh, what we do here is we, we really look back into nature and we look there, what we find is a concept that is, does exactly that. And that concept is called viruses. So viruses don't do anything but deliver their genetic material to the respective hosts, for example, to us, and um, then replicate there. What we're now doing is we're taking these viruses and changing them. We're changing them. We're taking out the ability that they can uh, amplify themselves and hurt us for example, and we're replacing the genetic material that the virus otherwise would have brought to our tissues by therapeutic DNA. And what sort of viruses are these? Because there are lots and lots of viruses that infect humans. You know, there's everything mm -hmm. from HIV through to, you know, herpes viruses and all sorts of things. What are the viruses that gene therapists like to use? Yeah, what you've do just done is you've described pretty much the early stages of gene therapy development because every single virus that we had some idea about were, were explored for the possibility of delivering genes to, to humans. Currently, the front runners in, in gene delivery are viruses, for example, adeno-associated virus, which clearly is a human virus, a non-pathogenic human virus. What that means is even the wild-type virus doesn't make us sick. So we, we just catch it and nothing happens. We just catch it, nothing happens until we're infected by a nastier virus, for example, herpes or, or adenovirus, and, and then AAV, adeno-associated virus, starts replicating and killing these cells. So for us, potentially even a protective virus. So we're taking that virus and we're, we change the genome to contain whatever therapeutic gene we need and then manufacture the, these recombinant viruses as, as ultimately as drug product. I guess the big challenge is you've got this virus, it's loaded with the gene that you want mm -hmm. someone's cells to make. What are the big challenges there? I mean, I guess it's kind of hard if you want to manipulate every cell in someone's body. <laughs> How do you get enough of the virus into the right place? Yeah, so that, that's a very good question because that's one of the challenges that um, gene therapy faces. And, uh, and, and that's really, you know, the result of, of many years of, of, of research, which have shown us that for the, for example, adeno-associated virus can be modified. It can be modified to infect particular cells or particular organs more efficiently. And what that does is, in essence, it gives us a panel of viral vectors based on this one system that has preferential the preferential targeting efficiencies that we can generate viruses that are very well at infecting the CNS, the central nervous system, or viruses that are good at infecting um, the liver, for example. And we have now a choice of, of many where, where we can really use the behavior of these recombinant viruses and, and, and design our approach around those. Where are the kind of the best or the, the most interesting approaches for really making this work in practice? Yeah, I think, you know, my pragmatic view of this is, is that we really have to start with, um, with simple concepts. And, and one, of, one of the examples is, for example, hemophilia B, where Pfizer is, has an involvement. And really what, what that is, it's, it's 
a single, single protein that's not functioning well, that's not functioning at all, in fact, which leads to the bleeding deficiency of, of these hemophilia patients. Now, what a simple gene therapy does in this case is the, the factor IX gene that's um, deficient in the hemophilia B is being uh, put into an AAV vector and, and, and really systemically delivered to the liver. And what that then does is it, it, it makes the liver to become a protein factory. It reads the DNA, um, the DNA instructions, it generates the protein, the factor IX protein, and secretes it back into the blood circulation, which then allows the patients to have normal clotting behavior, which in essence means the disease can be cured. And my two really big questions about this are, A, is it safe? And then B, how much will it cost? And we'll, we'll take those one at a time because I do remember from uh, some time ago there was a very famous case of a gene therapy that was tried and the, the person undergoing the therapy actually died and it, and it did raise a lot of questions about is this safe, should we be doing this? So let, let's tackle that first. You know, what has come on since then to make these therapies safer? Yes, yeah, so Jesse, Jesse Gelsinger died in 1999 um, as a result of an immune response to, um, uh, to the viral vector that was used at that point, which was based on adenovirus. Adenovirus is actually a very immunogenic virus. It's kind of it, nasty stuff. It's, yes, exactly. It, and also it causes a strong immune response, which really wasn't, hasn't, hadn't been recognized at that point. Um, but what I have to say that in the past almost 20 years since, since that, we've learned an awful lot. A lot of work has been done um, around the safety of these vectors. We now have parameters where we can measure what the response to the delivery vehicle will be and anticipate um, really, setting, really setting the stage for, for a really safe trial. And as you know, clinical trials are really, a large part of the clinical trials are driven by, by one concern and one concern only, and that is safety. And then there's the cost. And I know that some clinical trials have happened to test things like gene therapy in the eyes, trying to restore sight. You're talking about the clinical trials in, in haemophilia. There are trials undergoing in, in cystic fibrosis. And we hear about things like there's a, a basically a gene-based medicine for muscular dystrophy. And these things seem to cost so much money. Uh, is this really a viable approach for the future? So you're talking to a scientist, um, and I think it would be really unwise for you to ask me about costing of these, you know, very complex, uh, which is a very complex um, issue. All I can tell you is that I know that gifted people are, are currently considering exactly what impact costing has and so on and so forth. All I know is really the, the science behind it. And what I, what I can tell you is that, that I think what we're trying to do is more complex than just a cost for one drug. What we're trying to do is a novel approach, which in essence can for a long time or ultimately maybe forever modify a disease. Um, and if it's forever, you call that cure, cure a disease. And, and these are concepts that, that are novel, which is why a lot of, uh, of government agency, pharmaceutical companies and, and so on, um, are really now sitting down and, and, and trying to uh, try to figure this out. What, what is the medical, what is the health consequence for these type of treatments? And they can be Vast, in fact, because because many of the diseases that we're looking at, they're not treatable by other methods. And, you know, at some point, somebody will really figure out what is the reasonable cost in this really novel space. That's Michael Linden speaking to me at the British Science Festival in Swansea last year. 
is the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Coming up later, our gene of the month sounds like an alien, or at least it hears like one. But first, so far we've heard about using techniques like CRISPR and gene therapy to fix faulty genetic information encoded within DNA. But researchers are now using DNA itself as a storage facility for information. Last month, scientists used CRISPR technology to sneak a strand of DNA into bacteria, encoding a string of genetic information that could be decoded once the bug's DNA was sequenced and read back into the digital information encoding a short movie. It was a famous early film of a galloping horse. And just last week, a team of researchers announced that they managed to encode a piece of malicious malware code into DNA. When this DNA was fed into a sequencing machine, it hacked into the computer program responsible for analysing the DNA coming from the sequencer. Nick Goldman at the European Bioinformatics Institute was one of the first people to have the idea of storing digital information in the form of DNA around five years ago. So, where did it come from and how do they do it? The idea came from um, meetings where we were talking about the problems of storing all the information in cellular DNA that we're now, as scientists, learning to read and interpret to understand about molecular biology and health and all the different aspects of genome research. But our work at the Institute here includes storing all that information, making it available for the scientific community. And that means we need large data centres and we have trouble managing those. And at the end of a long day of meetings, we were having uh, a joke in the bar about wasn't there some other way of storing information? And DNA itself is a way of storing information. And that inspired us to hatch this plan of doing an experiment to show that you could store any information in DNA, just as you can store any information in your computer or, or on your phone or any digital device with a memory. Because the information that's in my phone or in my computer, that's in binary, it's ones and zeros. And the DNA code is four. You've got A, C, T and G in nature. That's the code you're using. In nature, there's a very specific code uh, in which the A's, C's and G's and T's hold the information of how a protein should be made and, and a number of many other genomic functions as well, uh, controlling what goes on in cells. So that code's no use to us. That code doesn't store zeros and ones, which we use to st make MP3 files or PDFs or whatever it is. So one of the things we had to do was invent our own code where the input would be the zeros and ones from a file on the computer, and the output would be a series of A's, C's, G's and T's, which combined with the code we had just invented would allow us to store that zero and one information, the binary information, and later on to recover it again. So then to de-encrypt it, so you take any string of DNA and it will spit out this binary computer code the other end? Not any string of DNA. We put in all sorts of special constraints that would help with error correction and make uh, would reduce some of the problems we knew would occur as a consequence of the techniques in molecular biology we would use. So in fact, not any string of DNA would decode to a meaningful series of zeros and ones, but essentially anyone that was holding information in our code could be converted back. And in a sense, it's very straightforward. If everything worked with no errors, it would be very, very easy and very fast to do that. And of course, the devil is in the detail. And what we actually spent all our effort doing was devising a system that would be robust to the various errors we knew would happen along the way. 
And how robust is it? What's your sort of error rate? And how does that compare with, say, other systems where you really don't want errors? We mostly did uh, proof of principle experiments so far. And I'm proud to say our error rate is zero. But we were very conservative with the way we devised the code. We didn't make a code in the way you would for a mass production system. It's not like in you know, mobile phones where they know there will be a certain amount of loss and we're kind of used to that. We didn't want to do a demonstration which had a bit of lost information uh, and showed that it was kind of possible. So we, we were really very, very careful with the, how uh, robust we made our code to errors. Uh, with the intention of getting it entirely right. In the real world, um, for mobile phones, we tolerate a certain amount of distortion and we can live with that. But computer data centers talk about you know, 99.9999999% accuracy. And so what we're working towards would be codes that would try and achieve about that level. I mean, 100% accuracy is not realistic, but we try and get we'll, in future for large amounts of information, the idea will be to get exceedingly low error rates. And we're optimistic that should be possible. Now, the thing about this is like, you know, you've got zeros and ones, binary code, and you, we're talking about letters, we're talking about A, C's, T's and G's of DNA. But these are molecules, these are chemicals, adenine, cytosine, thymine, guanine, and DNA is a molecule. How do you turn that binary information into a molecule? So we're literally talking like a string of DNA that has this sequence. How do you make that? Well, there are companies who do exactly that. Um, and it's, it's a difficult process. Humans are not as good at doing that as the cells of living organisms are, but we're getting there. Roughly speaking now, the state of the art is uh, machines that can make molecules that are about 200 letters long. And one of the problems we had to overcome was that's not one of those is not nearly enough information to encode an MP3 or a PDF. And so we had to devise a system which would use many fragments of DNA, which in combination held all the information we needed. And this introduced yet another problem, which is that when you read them back, they don't come in any specific mm. order. <laughs> so we had to add a kind of indexing number procedure one, to two. it so that exactly so that when we did read each piece back before we decoded the information in that piece, we first read the bit that said, I belong in file number 23 and I belong. The information is at position 797 in that file. File. And how do you then read it back out again? So reading it is actually slightly easier. Humans have got better at that. Uh, and that's all been driven by genome sequencing projects. Of course, there's a huge demand to read the genomes of living organisms, particularly humans, but any living organism has a genome for us to read. And there's been a number of changes in the technology over the last years, the few years on how we do that. And there's more changes in the pipeline that we know are coming in the next year or so. But the aim is always the same, that given pieces of DNA, that we can read those and read back the sequence of letters. Normally, we're doing that to understand our genomes, to look at the differences between one human and the other, to understand the causes of genetic diseases and so on. But for our purposes, exactly the same technology gives us back the series of letters, which is what we need to decode to recover information. And it sounds wonderful, but not quite as simple as like the, the read-write of a computer's hard drive. 
it's not quite as simple, but bear in mind there's a lot of stuff going on in your computer and in the disk drive that they don't tell you about because no one wants to know. No one wants to know that there's constantly errors on their hard disk drive uh, and that there's a very complex machine in there moving components around and whizzing things around in circles and, and reading them because you don't need to think about that when you use a hard disk drive because they're now, of course, very reliable. Um, and so on. So partly it is more complicated, but a lot of that is simply we're learning as humans, as scientists, to manipulate DNA and write it and read it. But we're still not as good at that as we're going to be in the future. And of course, one of our aims on this project is to make DNA information storing devices, which we can use much more like a hard disk drive or a USB stick or something like that. So here you've got a huge data center. I've seen it. It's like this kind of enormous boxes with blinking lights and all these kind of things. What would a future DNA storage center look like? It would just be loads of little tubes? Probably, or even smaller than that. If you could come, you know, in, in future, we may be thinking you'd, you'd be able to read these on something more like a computer chip. So perhaps it would be a, a small device, maybe like a, a bank of hundreds or thousands of USB stick type devices, but inside each one, instead of electronic components, or as well as electronic components, there'd be amounts of DNA and there'd be some microfluidics going on inside there that would move the samples to the region where the reader would be. And perhaps if you needed to uh, recover the information, you'd go in there and pick one off the shelf, or maybe a robot would do it like in a tape archive center. It's mostly robots that go and select the tape. We'd have a robot that would select the little USB stick type device and plug it into a machine that would take a tiny sample out, read the DNA, uh, and use the computer, of course, to process that information. So one day, all this information that we're getting about genomes from around the world, humans, animals, pathogens, all that information about DNA from DNA could be stored in DNA. Yes, strangely. And of course, all the other information in the world that we're storing, you know, all of Facebook's archives of everything anyone's ever posted. Uh, I mean, any any large data application you can think of. And we've had a lot of interest in this technology uh, because uh, the storage of the information has a much smaller energy requirement, um, so it could save money in the long term, uh, and also uh, much smaller amount of space is needed. DNA is incredibly dense information storage medium, and so the amount of information you store in something you know, the size of your finger is thousands of times as much as you can store in an equivalent amount of hard disk. Nick Goldman from the European Bioinformatics Institute. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I've got a new book out. How to Code a Human is a kind of field guide to genetics, packed with useful diagrams and pictures explaining how our genes make us who we are. Here's a short extract from the introduction. During the 1960s, scientists started to piece together the concept of the molecular gene, discovering that genes are stretches of DNA encoding specific instructions for cells to do something, usually to make a specific molecule, such as a protein. Around the same time, computers were becoming more sophisticated, so it was easy to make comparisons between the strings of chemical letters that make up the DNA with the logical string of digits or commands within computer code. Following on from this was the idea that if we could just crack the code and read all our genes, then we would understand exactly how cells and bodies work. 
Over the past few decades, it's become clear that this view is far too simplistic. Instead of being a computer code with tidy electrical circuits, genes are more like recipes. They are living entities full of constantly shifting molecules and with many options for flexibility, depending on the range of things a cell needs to manufacture. Somehow, in the midst of all this biological hurly-burly, genes need to be switched on and off at the right time and in the right place to ensure that cells continue to function properly. It's also important to note that there is no such thing as a gene for a trait, such as height or intelligence, or for a disease, like cancer. Genes are recipes for making molecules, and it's how all these molecules work together in our cells, body and brain, along with the environment around us, that make us who we are and determines our risk of all kinds of illnesses. That's from How to Code a Human, and my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, is also available in paperback, audiobook and Kindle versions from all retailers. That's a more in-depth look at the latest ideas in genetics, with personal interviews with experts on the cutting edge of the field. And the links to both of those books are on the website, nakedscientist.com slash genetics, on the podcast page for this show. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's Spock. Named after the pointy-eared first officer of the USS Enterprise in Star Trek, Spock is one of a number of genetic mutations that affect hearing in zebrafish. And yes, it does give them little pointy ears. It may seem a bit strange, but little zebrafish do have ears and an auditory system. Spock is one of a number of zebrafish mutations involved in ear development that were identified in a large screen run by German researcher Janni Nusslein-Volhard, who's known in genetic circles for her large-scale discovery of faulty fruit fly genes. By searching through thousands of embryos created by mating male fish that had been exposed to DNA-damaging chemicals, the team found nearly 60 mutations, giving them faulty ears. As well as Spock, an obvious name for the fish with pointy ears, many of the other gene faults affecting the shape of the fish's ears have appropriate names, including boxed ears, earache, dog-eared, big ears, earplugs and headphones. There's even a Van Gogh mutation after the painter who famously cut off his ear. Regular listeners might remember that there's also a fruit fly gene called Van Gogh, but that's a different gene. It's involved in bristle patterning. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with all the latest news from the world of genetics. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes. Until then, as the Vulcans say, live long and prosper. <laughs>